0: Welcome to Everything Belongs, a podcast for those living, creating, leading, and thriving while in the deep end of life. I'm your host, Madison Morgan, leadership coach, creative consultant, and speaker. I coach soulful visionaries and go-getting mavericks who desire to create art of their lives and take their work both deeper and higher. In this show, I'll be bringing you an overflow of conversations with my favorite thought leaders, teachers, healers, and creatives who inspire me to live more fully in my own power, worth, and wholeness, along with offering some episodes where I share my own practical insights, behind the scenes peeks into my process, and tools I use on my own journey. There will not be much we shy away from here because at this table, everything belongs. Therefore, you can expect me to ask the uncomfortable, juicy questions. You can expect that you'll hear people you disagree with on the podcast and maybe even ideas you've never previously considered. I trust you with your own discernment as we take this deep dive. You can expect to laugh, cry, learn, and be challenged by the guests as they share their diverse experiences and views of the world. It's my hope through learning to see that all of it belongs that you will develop a more sovereign way of holding yourself. So you can playfully go after the life relationships and career you are made for to let all parts of yourself have a seat at the table to lead and create from your deepest truth and become your own source of validation all because you finally know you're worthy of it. All that's required to get started that you show up curious and willing. Let's dive in. Well, hello. Thank you so much for tuning in to the celebratory episode of everything belongs. It's officially been one year since the release of these episodes. Last year, I chose to start this podcast because I wanted to have thought-provoking, nuanced, delicious conversations with people that I found inspiring, and I wanted to be able to share from the heart in a way that I didn't feel like was really being had on social media. 2020 brought so many things to my awareness about the way I had been showing up online, about the limitations of social media as it comes to connecting and really feeling the heart of the the people who are sharing. And as a coach and content creator... And I even hesitate to say content creator, but let's be honest, anyone sharing and marketing their work in the world has to create content to do so. I I really felt there was a limitation to getting my, my heart across in the way that I wanted to on social media. And so soon after lockdown, I started working on this project that would bridge some of the coaching style conversations I was having with clients and the things that I was hearing my clients talk about with the things that I personally love talking about. This was a passion project for me that I was hoping would be of service. And it has been so amazing getting your feedback, hearing what you love, hearing the ways that uh, some of this makes no sense to some people, and that I am—I'm really literally learning in real time as I'm sharing these episodes with you. And so, what I'm hearing and getting from your reviews, from your feedback, and also from the most listened episodes is a really keen sense of what you're wanting, of what is serving you, and about ways that as a host in the guests that I have on, I can be doing even better bringing you conversations that you just fucking love. So it makes me so happy to see all of the reviews. And again, when you message me on social media and you tell me about how this impacts you, I really do listen to that. And I I watch the numbers. I know what episodes are getting the most listens and that actually is what today's episode is all about it's about celebrating the most listened to episodes and that means these are the episodes that you are loving the most out of all of the conversations that i've had the top three episodes in the entire year since we've hosted everything belongs are from dr hillary mcbride africa brooke and bethany webster it does not surprise me. None of these episodes being the most popular surprised me at all, because these were some of my favorite episodes to record. Hillary McBride and I talked about being your body, how you are your body, and it's a whole podcast on embodiment. And it was one of the first episodes I released and remains the number one most downloaded episode of Everything Belongs. The second most downloaded episode is actually a quite recent episode with Africa Brook, and it's taking our sovereignty back from the social media machine. And I knew that was going to be a very well-downloaded episode. I didn't realize the impact it was going to have. Africa's take on social media, what has happened in 2020, is one of the very reasons I started the podcast in the first place. So you're going to get to hear 15 minutes of my in Africa's conversation that is really the most nourishing and juicy part of the conversation that I loved. And the third most listened to episode of the entire year was with Bethany Webster on discovering the inner mother. And in that episode, I actually share a lot about my journey with my mother and the hardships in our relationship, our estrangement from one another, and what I've been doing to heal my inner mother so that I can restore my relationship with my own mom, whether that is in contact or no contact, where I feel really clear in my relationship with her. And so all of these episodes are with people that I admire and respect so much. And it is no surprise to me that these episodes resonated with you the most out of all of the episodes that have been shared. And so with that being said, you now know how serious I take the things that you share with me about the podcast, your your feedback, your reviews, and the downloads. All of that means so much to me. I again started this mostly for myself and wanted a reason to be having delicious juicy conversations that light me up and it means so much to get to share those with you and I hope that they are of service. So without further ado, let's dive into the first conversation with Dr. Hillary McBride.
1: but I like to start by defining embodiment because that word is thrown around so much, but I've also seen it used in ways where I'm like I don't I don't know if that's I don't know if that's what this means. And so for me, it's a buzzword a,
2: right
1: now. it is a buzzword and I've seen people use it to like sell products or describe like, you know, this, you're only really embodied when you're dancing in a kind of sexy way. And I just mm. get really curious about how we have even reduced this being human to these very specific slices that tend to support gender scripting or misogyny or capitalism. So again, right. I want to I want to bring it all the way. Back ooh, ooh,
0: there's so much there.
1: It, yeah, yeah. I have. I I feel I feel uh, hot, and I feel oh, like <laughs> a little agitated when I think about the co-opting of the body again. And even as we've tried to do body liberation, how that has been packaged and sold <sighs> to reinforce a particular social story. So when we think about what embodiment is from a scholarly perspective, it's the experience of being human. It's the experience of being a body in a social context, which means that we are holding these two things in tension. You are your body. There is no you that exists outside of your body. And that body exists in a time and place with social rules, with power and privilege that reinforce or change how you experience yourself. And so these two things are constantly in dialogue, the the embodied self and the context that we're in Mm. and the ability to notice those things and be critical about them is actually separate from the experience. That the experience of feeling like mm, we move into a space and we realize that there's nobody else that looks like us in that space. Or there's nobody who shares the same identity in that space. And so we kind of shrink back and our shoulders get small. That's embodiment. But so is feeling like you're full. And so stopping like when you stop eating, because you're mm-hmm. full. Or when you, you realize like, I'm tired. And so I'm going to put myself to bed. That's just as much embodiment as it <laughs> is being critical of the social discourse that shapes all of those choices that we make about our bodies. So I'd like, I know that embodiment is a buzzword and we think about it as this, um, like new thing and this really kind of, uh, expressive thing and somehow movement is involved in some way, but embodiment is, when I think about it as a social movement, it's the remembering of ourselves. We have mm-hmm. always been bodies, but in some social context, we've been encouraged and rewarded for leaving our bodies. Right. We have always known something we're born. Like, you know, kids take keys and put them in their mouth. Cause they're like, this is the way that I experience the world. I put everything inside my body and I touch it and I feel it and I smell it. And the sensory orientation to the world is primary, but then that's like squeezed out of a lot of us depending on the cultural context that we're in. Mm-hmm. And so embodiment as a social movement is about remembering the things that were taken away from us based on our problematic social discourses and doing the intentional co- like collecting of those parts of ourselves in simultaneously tearing down the structures that prevent the, uh, the remembering in the first place. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's all of like kind of the technical jargony stuff. Mm-hmm. And I'm happy to go more into the history and in, in terms of how embodiment came out of um, continental philosophy. philosophy. I, I don't sense that's what you're asking for or what you're getting at.
0: <laughs> I'm curious. I'm like, I'm open to it. Okay. Well, we can come back there if you have more questions. <laughs> okay. Sounds good. But I
1: really want to answer your question about me and the practice, which is something that again, I've cultivated because, cultivated because of my discipline. So as a therapist, When we get into training, what we're trying to do primarily in the early years of being this listener and question asker and attachment figure is to really see the other person. So we're really Mm -hmm. paying attention to what are you saying, but how does your body match or not match what you're saying? And how does the tone of voice that you're using it with give me more or less information about what's happening inside of you? Mm -hmm. And then there's something called micro attunement that we learn to do, which is to notice like, oh, I saw a a very slight flicker on your left eye. And that tells me, oh, I've seen that before and it it showed up right before you cried. So it tells me maybe sadness is on the horizon. So this Mm -hmm. like really detailed attunement to another person. But there's this other complicating element, which is that we are a self in the room and how people say things to us and what they say about their lives and how they look and how they sit stirs up stuff for us as a therapist. And so being aware of what's happening in me so that it doesn't further complicate what's happening in the room is the process of becoming aware of countertransference. How does what you show up in the room as stir something up in me? And what are my reactions and projections to you? So we start to see not only is the therapist aware of the patient, but to do good work, they have to be aware of themselves. Right. But then there's this other kind of like, oh, it's complex, this thing where I have to put some of the stuff in me on the shelf to be able to fully attune to you. But if I remove all of the elements that make me me, gone is my sensitivity. Gone is my attunement and my empathic response. So the ability to sl- like kind of slice out some of the things that complicate interpersonal connection but stay fully present to hear another person is just something that I've, I've practiced for years and years and years and had I mean, supervisors say, you flinched when the person said that. What happened in you? Go do some work around that. Okay. Or you got tight, or it seems like you're posturing yourself or your body language changed when that person came in the room. What was going on for you? Go do some work around that. So that I have become through the eyes of another person, which is often what we do with our patients become so much more aware of how my body is speaking to me at any given moment. Mm-hmm. And I like to think about that as multi- having multiple tracks of awareness open at the same time. So I'm, I'm tuned into what's happening in the other person. That's channel one. I'm tuned into what's happening with me. That's channel two. And I'm tuned into what's happening between us and how we're dancing in the space together. That's channel three. And to be, I would say, a competent therapist means being able to read all three of those channels at the same time. And so I think just like learning to speak like multiple languages, this is just a skill that I've practiced uh, through thousands and thousands of hours of training, supervised training. And it has allowed me to, let's say I'm by no means a master of this. I don't know who could be, but be really in tune with myself and be really open to and available another person at the same time without those being in competition with each other. Mm.
0: I, I love that so much because a part of it feels really healing for the journey of healing from codependence Mm. and Mm -hmm. the ability to not fully leave, which in my history has been quite a disassociative response of overly attuning outward, but not feeling inward and to recultivate that, um, whenever I say and experienced you as being fully open, but boundaried, also like at the same time Mm. and what a safe experience that is to to trust you with yourself
1: yes yeah
0: and to me that is what a person living in their sovereignty feels like Mm. it's like i i can be in relationship with you because i I trust you to take care of you and that way I can take care of me and between us, we can have a beautiful relationship. That's
1: right. Yeah. So good. Oh my gosh. Isn't that the best ever? And that to be able to notice that difference, like I'm so struck too, Madison, by your finely tuned awareness. I know that that can be a hallmark of having some kinds of codependency too, is like over awareness of the Mm -hmm. interpersonal dynamics, but Mm -hmm. there's also a superpower in that too. Like it's a, -hmm. it's a kind of giftedness that often we have to develop if we've been in in, in difficult interpersonal situations, but that doesn't make it a gift any less. Mm-hmm. And I think of it as being so important that when that finely tuned awareness gets turned back on ourselves, mm-hmm. we like, and not in a critical way, but in a, oh, I noticed something shifted for me. And I have the resources and the scaffolding to be able to go inward and explore that in such a way that helps me know myself more.
0: Yeah, feels so good. And the experience- safety, that those kinds of relationships that yes. I'm really personally moving into and then watching a lot of my clients move into is, is this lots of, of experiential, um, this idea of embodiment that is dancing or, mm. you know, I'm going to go outside to get embodied, but just to be here with you and, and feel me mm. is, is embodiment.
1: That's right. Yeah.
0: And yeah. that's, that's and it. it.
1: This is what gets me so fired up. Is it? it I feel frustrated when we take uh, decolonizing practices, when we take human experiences that actually are sacred and and slow and methodical and and available to everybody, and we package them in such a way that we make it feel like it has to look a certain way to be to be valid, right? Mm-hmm. That. You have to be doing this kind of practice to be embodied. Like, no, if you noticed you were hungry (laughs) and you ate, you were embodied. You're doing it. Wow. You're doing it. You're (laughs) doing it. And when you were aware that you code switched, like, Mm. oh, somebody with more power came into the room and I played small. You were embodied.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Mm. These are... um, these are just kind of being human experiences and paying attention to them mm-hmm.
0: remembering I love that. being human experiences
1: yes being human experiences paying attention to them and understanding that that our context impacts our our being human experiences in some way mm.
0: i want to i want to talk about two which i feel like are opposite sides of the same coin around embodiment, which is mm-hmm. control of the body, which is right. like this hyper awareness and management mm-hmm. of the body, mm-hmm. um, at least in my experience. And then the this association of not not being able to feel I have to pee or I have to eat or in uh, the the oscillation between those two and what I've been noticing is I come I, I think we all come from a punishment programming culture where like mm-hmm. you get the rules and then the rules are enforce right. via some sort of punishment in schools then we also on the macro have this in the prison system which if we're all raised in this idea of punishment program it, it makes sense that we have such a system of punishment right. even though it's not not serving us which is maybe another topic but this idea mm-hmm. of punishment program control control mm-hmm. your body control your behaviors control your emotions control other people because they're not trustworthy control yourself because your body is not trustworthy Mm-hmm. Um and this this bridge, I again, I'm like, what question am I asking? I'm I'm curious, what um, controlling our appearance, controlling our bodies, controlling our emotions, and then controlling each other? How? I mean, it sounds like that is also a form of embodiment, but I also in my experience, embodiment and remembering ourselves can help heal us of this experience of
1: needing to control.
0: Mm -hmm. Is is that true?
1: Maybe I'll back up and I'll talk about, I'll talk about it, how I understand it clinically Yes, uh, instead of like, is it true or is it not true? I'm really impacted by the work of Michel Foucault, a philosopher who wrote a really important book called Discipline and Punish. Mm. And he has written extensively about how bodily control is the most significant way that we can actually oppress and manage groups of people because it mm. fragments them from themselves. And because their knowing and their autonomy exists within themselves as bodily experiences. So mm. Foucault has talked about how the self-surveillance that we adopt by being in a punishment and control society means that we don't have to, end, we don't have to be controlled by other people anymore, we take the self-surveillance within ourselves. So when he's talking about this in terms of a, like a, a bodily societal form of control, he uses the image of Panopticon. And the Panopticon was a, uh, was a prison design by Jeremy Bentham, you know, centuries ago, in which a watchtower was at the center of a circular prison. And so there could be guards at the center, who were surveying out and shining lights in every direction. And so prisoners who were in this kind of circular prison facing inwards in their cells could never see if they were visible or not visible by the guards because the lights were always shining on them. So they could never see who was watching them, but they always felt watched.
0: That feels horrible.
1: Isn't that awful? Yeah. Yeah, And so Foucault takes Bentham's design of Panopticon to talk about how we in society, have internalized the watcher. We've internalized the bodily control and thought of it as something that we are actually doing ourselves, without realizing that we were gifted that way, of seeing ourselves. That that was imposed upon us and we internalized it. And when we are always self-surveilling, then we don't actually need to have somebody there controlling us and say, "Cross your legs" or "You're taking up too much space." We have learned to tell the stories of being smaller, controlled beings. Mm-hmm. and we police ourselves internally mm-hmm. and in order to do that we have to fragment some sort of knowing on the inside of us we have to disconnect from what is what is what what actually feels good goodness
0: i just
1: adore listening to
0: hillary talk about the body and about what embodiment means to her Knowing Hillary has literally been life changing for me. And getting to be with her in person in Hawaii last year, right before lockdown, was <laughs> such a fun experience because I got to see how truly Hillary embodies her own ideas about embodiment. She is the silliest, goofiest, funnest person and really lives what she teaches. So I would love to dive into the second episode that has been the most downloaded episode, and that is with Africa, Brook on taking your sovereignty back from the social media machine. Let's dive into 15 minutes with Africa. Where do you think the snag is and why people aren't asking questions? Is it punishment programming? Is it that they're overwhelmed?
3: Like, yeah, what limits the capacity for that? Mm, I think it's a combination of things. I I don't believe that it's one thing. I think it's it's external pressure but also it's internal pressure and when I say external pressure I mean you know you're not you're not actually being given time to think you're you're not given time to think critically so I think it's more than one thing that it, it's a very layered thing and as I just said you know there's the external pressure part of it but there's the internal pressure and what I see as the external pressure is again, a language piece, examples like silence is violence, right? So you have these terms where you're made to believe that if you don't react right now, or you don't say something immediately right now, then you are a white supremacist, then you are a bigot, then you are a misogynist, then you are X, Y, Z. There's a label that is ready for you if you don't respond um, at the right time. And it always makes me think who gets to decide what the right time is, who gets to decide that, right? Mm. Who, and it's always, you know, uh, faceless, nameless mob online a lot of the time that gets to decide that this is the right time. So when you have terms like silence is violence, just one example it doesn't, there's no room for you to think critically. There's only room for you to react because to be genuinely curious, you need to have the space and the time to process what is going on. Mm -hmm. When you see a headline, you know, and we need to also think of how the media Um, shape the news that we imbibe, right? It's all about clickbait. It's all about sensationalizing something. So when you see a headline before you react to it, what if you were to take some time to actually do a little bit of research and find out what the full story actually is, not from the news source that you normally go go to, but from another news source, right? Instead of using Google, go onto DuckDuckGo and see what else is going to come up. See what options you have get get different sides of the story before you react to it that's a part of thinking critically as well and i don't think it would really take much but when we think of the platforms that we're spending a lot of time on instagram twitter they are designed for us to be reactive so the thing that's happening is that we are forgetting that we are human beings that need time to process. So we're treating ourselves the same way that we we are on these platforms, where everything is reactive. So we start to believe that we need to operate in the same way a machine does, which is to take in so much information and to react immediately. And it it doesn't work that way. You are not a machine. But we're being trained to start treating ourselves as if we're machines. So if we don't respond at the drop of a hat, then that means you're this. So I think it's again that individual responsibility where you you get to say, no, I'm not going to respond in that way anymore. I've been responding in that way for X amount of time and clearly it's not working. Next time that I see a headline, next time that I see a story, next time that I see someone say, why are we not speaking about this? Because there's always someone fucking asking you why you're un- you're not speaking about the other thing, right? Say, no, I'm going to give myself some space to find out what this actually is, sit with it, even if it's a day, even if it's a few hours, whatever that sitting with it looks like, and then I'm going to decide whether I even want to say anything publicly or not. Right? Because another part of um, really going against this culture that we're seeing and that censorship part, but also pressuring yourself to react is saying, even though everyone says that I need to express my care publicly, I am going to express it privately because I think that is also very important. And it moves you away from being performative. And I think that's also a very big part of just thinking and responding critically. Thank you so much for saying that because a lot of people,
0: myself included last year, I didn't even realize how performative I was being because I felt so anxious. I wanted to make sure that I wasn't hurting clients who I ended up hurting anyway. Mm. You know, I was almost hyper, like being hypersensitive and hyper reactionary to the point where I wasn't taking care of myself to even make an informed decision because I was so activated Mm. and that time away is so wise to process, to digest, to have, to actually have the transformative experience of, okay, someone said this to me. I'm going to go talk about it with my trusted people, take this into community, take this to my therapist, process how I feel. So my stuff isn't getting in the way from seeing maybe what's here for me Mm. and also what's not mine here, because that happens too. Yes. That, you know, if I could, distill this entire conversation down I feel like what I'm inspired to walk away from is being sovereign from being a cog in the social media machine oh there you go there that
3: you
0: go. is instead of using having it use me to like actually use
3: it yes and have a life yes and you know what I I love that because it also It goes beyond because when people are having those conversations about detaching from social media, they're talking about it at the corporate level, which I think is very important. But when I say that, I mean, understanding the intentions of Facebook, understanding the intentions of Instagram, understanding what they do to keep us addicted to the platforms. Very important conversation. Very, very important. Understanding how they're using our data, right? But a part of it that we're not talking about so much, and I hope that we do start, is how are we choosing to engage with each other on these platforms that are designed? They're outrage machines. They are Mm -hmm. outrage machines. That's what they are. How are we choosing to engage on them? And really understanding that on these platforms, there are mobs many different types of mobs, right? There's always going to be someone demanding that you do something on their terms, demanding that you share something because they have just found out about it and they decided to click a button and share it. Now (laughs) it's your turn. You should do the same. No, you say no. You Mm -hmm. you decide, and I've said this many times, but we need to have, we need to be more courageous. Oh my goodness. It's never been more urgent for us to be more courageous. Mm -hmm. You're an adult. You're not a child anymore. We're not children anymore, you know, Mm -hmm. and I also believe that there's a, and this can sound cheesy, but I I believe that there's a future generation to save. I really believe that. Mm -hmm. And it's really urgent for us to be more courageous to say, no, I'm not doing this. I'm not doing that anymore. I'm an adult. I get to take some time to process. I get to take the time to research, to find out what this information is. And I will make an informed decision when I am ready. Wow. That's that's we have to be willing to do that. And it's gonna be fucking uncomfortable. You know, if you have been told that because you're white, you have to react within five seconds. If you're privileged, you have to react in this amount of time. If you're marginalized, then you have to identify as oppressed. You have to be angry at the world. If you're this, if you're that, you you get to say no. You get to say, you know what. I, I know myself well enough and I'm going to make the decision that is not only best for me, but it's actually going to benefit the collective. Mm-hmm. We need to be willing to do that. Thank you.
0: It it feels like elder wisdom in a time where I personally have lacked mm-hmm. that and longed for it. Of that slower pace, which you were talking yes. about with your tea. We were talking yes. about your personal life being slow and expansive and this one area where we get sucked in to like not being a person like Mm. no longer being a person to slow it down and to have a real process like maybe real transformation is possible if we slow it down
3: yes yes and i i would also say that you know and the you know this is something someone could choose to do or not to do But I believe that we also need to be talking about these things. Mm -hmm. So, for example, what you and I are talking about right now, of course, it needs to be that internal process of saying, I'm going to take my time. I don't need to always be reacting. We can do it behind closed doors. But I think it's also really powerful if other people see that other people are talking about this. So it causes that ripple effect because we've got to where we are now because of the collective. It it started with an individual, it always does, but then it spreads and now it's the collective, right? Mm -hmm. Which means we're able to counteract that as a collective as well. So speak about these things to say, you know what, this is the way that I was responding before but I'm not going to be doing that anymore. I hope we can show each other compassion. I hope we can still fight for change and still, you know, speak up about inequalities, but we shouldn't police the way in which we're all doing it. Everyone's going to do it in different ways. Everyone's time frame is going to be different. Everyone's way of going about things is mm-hmm. going to be different. And we need to honor that. And I choose to do that through the lens of rest through the lens of processing, through the lens of doing my own research before just taking a fucking infographic as fact. That's where we are now, Madison. <laughs> an infographic is just the truth, depending on how many followers the person that shares it has. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, um, so, so just kind of stepping back and being like, no, I'm, mm-hmm. a, I'm an adult. My goodness, I'm an, I'm an adult. I get to decide. Mm,
0: and we don't want to believe that our minds are so fragile that we could be the one sucked into QAnon. Uh huh. And yet, um, the ways that it happens are by the like you just said believing the first thing that you read and yeah. going deeper into the rabbit hole without nuanced and complex different views of the same mm. thing. That's critical thinking. Mm. Goodness, I could talk another like three hours just about <laughs> this. Too. Just about. I just consider Africa to be one of the most brilliant thought leaders on social media at this time. I feel like she is pushing convention in so many ways and really inspiring critical thought. One of the things I love about Africa is that she... She pushes the buttons that are some of the most hot topics around social justice, around race, around social media, around our government, and she does so in a way that actually includes people instead of excluding people. And I found that to be such an inspiring thing about her. And I think what makes her so uniquely magnetic, because there are a lot of people speaking to very similar things to Africa who are doing it in a way that is exclusionary and blaming and really leaves out critical nuanced thought. And at the core of everything I hear Africa talking about and teaching, it's really not about having the same ideologies, but about looking at what we think, believe, and the actions we are taking from a critical lens that allows us to have a broader perspective without forsaking the values we hold. And so that's what I really adored about this conversation with Africa. And now, for the conversation with Bethany Webster, fifteen minutes of the most juicy parts of this conversation, let's dive in and learn a little bit more about the mother wound. I wanted to ask you about sovereignty. Sure. I wanted to ask you about sovereignty because that is a big part of what we're doing whenever. To me, when we're reclaiming the inner mother is saying mm-hmm. I am sovereign and you, I'm going to read you have a, a title of an article on your website. It says, what is sovereignty? 13 elements. And you share that you have to claim your own inner authority is valid to be sourced from within. And I'm curious, in your journey to discovering your inner mother, what are some things that you felt were vital in that process that you had to reclaim?
2: Yeah, I think one of the things that was most empowering for me to claim that initially I was afraid of doing um, was was reclaiming my anger. Um, like I like to talk about how inner mothering has two parts, or the two wings are tenderness and and fierceness. And I had the tenderness down in the terms of you know I was conditioned to be a good girl, pleasing, approval seeking. Um, so my love, it's almost like I was such a loving being. I remember being a little girl and feeling like I was this just love bomb, you know, but then over time I accumulated all this residue and the residue made it so that loving actually meant a loss of self loving meant being exploited. Uh, loving meant, um, being an object, So it's been this process of in order to shed those overlays to reclaim love as not being also being oppressed. um, It it meant claiming anger and allowing myself to get really angry about what happened to me, how I was exploited, objectified, um, didn't have a voice, that I was in a servitude role. Um, So over time, the layers of anger, actually, I used to be afraid of anger, like, oh my God, it's going to, okay. It could last forever. It's going to overtake, overtake me. Um, this makes me a bad person, you know, all these old part of the overlay. Um, but what I found was that anger actually, instead of taking energy away, it gave me energy. It was, it was, it was, like, instead of turning anger about myself, I had blamed myself. I was able to turn that anger where it really belonged, which was towards, um, the, the, um, ignorance of my parents, this, uh, the culture, uh, people that were supposed to support me that didn't support me. I was able to actually digest some of that rage that had, and see it as a healthy response. Like anger is a healthy emotion. And so many of us grew up in, have grown up in families that say, Anything other than gratitude and love is bad and you're weak or bad if you feel anything else, right? So I think part of sovereignty is claiming that anger. And and what part of what I had to do to do that was to really work with my inner child and say to her, tell me everything you're angry about. I want to hear it all. Like, you know, tell me all about your anger and let's, let's work it out and just. I realized that the the child in me that was so full of rage just had never been heard. She had never really been heard. And so by making space for that, there was all this energy and lightness that, that came in. And it started to and I see this with the women I work with too. We have to go back to go forward. So I had to kind of look at the lens of my childhood differently. Instead of the narrative my parents had, which was we tried our best. If you feel anything other than gratitude, there's something wrong with you. I started to actually own my story of what it was like for me to grow up in that household and what a hell it was. And I started to have compassion and empathy for this little girl that I was. And as through, I, through that grieving process, the rage came too. I started to feel rage on behalf of myself. And that was a form of kind of self-validation, self like not needing them to understand me anymore. It was like, I started to prioritize my own narrative of what was true for me, what my experience was. And that was part of sovereignty as well. It's like, I get to own my story. I don't have to elevate the parent's story, which is what the society does, right? The child remains voiceless. The parent is still in power and the pain continues to the next generation. So I had to be willing to get really radical and bold, And my therapist was extremely helpful in that. I had a very, uh, very feminist therapist who was really amazing. I still work with her. And so it was like, yeah, owning my own narrative, feeling the anger. And the anger actually, on behalf of little Bethany, in that metabolizing process, allowed me to be really fierce in the present. Like it was that rage included love for myself. So it was like redefining love in a way that love includes anger, on you know when a when a boundary is violated, or when your a voice is taken away. I started to sense the injustice I incurred, and and looking at my life, thinking I'm going to tighten up my boundaries, like really tighten them up. I am not obligated, you know. No one's no one's entitled to my time, my energy, my resources. Like I choose. I select who gets my time. I'm the authority of my story. I think one of the hardest things was my mother and, um, you know, they accepting that she has a limited capacity. It's actually not personal what happened. She just doesn't have the capacity to understand. So that was a powerful place to get to because then I could say, I could let it be that she'll never understand. She'll never get me. Her capacity is so limited that she must see me as an, a, you know, a betrayer and um, feel a victim of me. There's, her capacity is so limited she cannot conceptualize of any other narrative. So that was, I think, one of the most powerful things that I step into continuously is allowing people to have their misconceptions, allowing them to have their misunderstandings, and staying rooted in what is my truth. And that that's valid, no matter what the outside what the outside does, so I think the anger getting in touch with anger is actually part of getting in touch with truth, and we're living in this time where I think more people are hungry for the truth, and so letting truth be my guide, you know I think we're seeing this politically as well. it's like we're entering this era of truth and integrity um, and I just one more point because I know this is getting to be a long answer to your question, but um, right now in the political situation, it's like, you see it on the political stage, people saying, well, just accept that the insurrection happened. We don't have to deal with it. And the other side is saying, but we can't have unity without accountability. And I think that phrase, you can't have unity without accountability is true for us personally. And that accountability means truth. So we have to get in touch with what's real and what's true for us. And our families and our culture have forced us to kind of build a barrier with truth. Like it wasn't safe to be honest. It wasn't safe to be true, especially as a woman, but now our, our hunger for the truth is getting stronger than our hunger for approval. And so that's becoming our guiding light right now. That's what I see. Like our generation is doing is like rooting into the truth is the most important thing, because how can we live without the truth? How can we be truly happy without the truth? Because we've seen the devastation that the lies and the manipulation create. And a lot of the past generations, suppression was love. You know, people that was viewed like if you didn't talk about the pain, the abuse, the addictions, if you kept all that under the rug, that was a form of loving your family. And that value, I think, is shifting radically now. I could not agree more. And I definitely
0: come from one of those families that you mm. just. Used- you really shouldn't be talking about this. Why are you holding me to who I used to be source of things? And what came up for me as you were talking is the infantilized woman. That's what I kept thinking of. The infantilized woman is naive. The infantilized woman cannot access her anger. The infantilized Mm -hmm. woman believes she is an object for other people's desires. And this initiation into being a woman, being our own mother, and then actually being able to relate to our mothers as people. Because it seems that when we're infantilized, we still need our mothers to mother us in this yeah. way, like we are children and the mm-hmm. the dynamic. And I'm, I guess I'm curious how in your research the patriarchy plays into that because i know the patriarchy wants infantilized women who don't have access to discernment doesn't have access to their power or the truth because they're easy to manipulate someone who can't discern the truth for mm-hmm. themselves
2: exactly exactly it's very threatening to the status quo because everything's baked like our subjugation is baked into everything and it has been for thousands of years so um like all systems they systems want like the status quo, a homeostasis, right? And this is true of families. It's true of organizations. It's true of political systems. If someone rocks the boat and doesn't do the thing that they did that kept everything working, the system gets, there's turbulence that's created. And so, but in order to move things to the next level, right, we need to disrupt what's happening. So we're in a flux, um I think everything, we're feeling it. We're in a flux all over the place. Um, So it's about more numbers of us rejecting, like you said, this infantilized role and becoming sovereign, accessing our power. And this is what I've seen with the the work that I do with my clients and students is women automatically become leaders, even if they're not searching for it in a way like um, you start to get more access to your voice, to... You have a lower tolerance for toxicity. Um, there is a passion and a creative kind of energy that comes on. So it's like the women I see, they either walking away from relationships or transforming them inside, you know, doing motherhood differently or doing a career differently and with new rules in a new way. Um, so this, this work is really the the shedding those layers of patriarchy and trauma that we've accumulated. And then the true self, that's really the goal of all this, is eventually, and with, with time, and for most of us, this is a lifelong journey, So, but with each layer we take off, we get more access to that truth, to that source inside, which doesn't go by any rules. And we need that kind of unstoppable power that we all share. So um, it's perfect. I think everything's lining up, just like personally, but also collectively, we're ready for, for more of this. And now that things are in flux, we can really create new paths, right? When things are up in the air, it's easier for new things to happen. So all of this makes me so
0: excited because I, I think we have a, a similar mind and systematic thinking of how the personal impacts the global, the systemic. And I host a nine month mastermind called Rising Sovereign. And so these are the, these are the very topics out in there and we're very Mm -hmm. fresh on this exact topic and this Mm. week in particular. And so what's really fresh for me. Yeah. Is getting their feedback this week that to become the mother, to become the, your own mother and to be initiated into true womanhood beyond the infantilized little girl there's fear around belonging that comes up with other yeah. women. So I'm curious in your work, in your personal life, how you have navigated the women's reaction to you, because we are also trained to keep each other in line.
2: Right, right, exactly, exactly. I think the most important thing that's helped me is to have a strong relationship with a woman who has her own secure attachment. And who, you know, it's like, <clears throat> I have, I would not be here where I am without being in therapy for 23 years with a long-term depth psychotherapist. So I've reworked the landscape of my attachment wound over so many years. And I will I'll probably work with her until I die or until she does. Um, but it's like, I I needed her, like she was so different from my mother and I met her very young. Um, and, and so she didn't need anything from me. She just was there to support me in this kind of mothering maternal role, but also she taught me to be fierce. She taught, she didn't reject me for the things that my mother rejected me from uh, For So I started to, it was through that bond with her, honestly, um, that I was able to actually see things much differently, like things I would accept in friendships. Like I think when I was younger, I had a lot of fair weather friends and, that would just kind of come in and go and and I have, you know and it's sad because you know it's it's about accepting that some people have a limited capacity and people a lot of the, a lot of the ways that people treat us are not personal and having really high standards. Um and I think it's just for us as women, it's like our mothers taught us about women, right? Like the how she treated us taught us what's acceptable and what's okay in relationships and like my mother was very much gossipy, catty, not deep, and I was deep from really young. So it's like there was so much not there. Um but I wanted to please her so much. So I think I brought that pleasing uh role into all my friendships and accepted a lot of um like disrespectful stuff too. So it was just it's just been this process I think of and I think we're all on that journey wherever we are like seeing what doesn't work for us in friendships and continuously raising the standard of what works for you and you don't have to have a ton of close friends. Like right now I have a very small circle, but I have a lot of people that I like I'm in contact with not super deep, but my deep people are really close and tight. And it's like, you don't starting well, so many things I could say, but it's like people need to earn the intimacy with you. You know, and I think as women, that's a, that's like a growing edge, right? Like we're so taught to be open and giving and, um, and that if we're like, if we take our time in relationships, then we're either a prude or we're like not cool or, but I think the, well, this is my experience. The people who are deep that I want to be with understand that and live the same way. So it's like, you'll find your people and you'll, you'll discard or leave aside what doesn't work. And, and it's just like this, as you shed down those layers within yourself, you resonate with different people and you'll, you know, find your tribe and everybody's life is different. Like part, part of it for me is like, my life is unconventional. I don't, I didn't live, you know, the path that my family and, and culture, but it's so awesome because it feels really authentic to who I am. So it's like becoming safe. I always come back to inner safety, like. Upgrading our safety algorithm for what helps us feel safe and loved and and um, letting that guide us, not what the, the society says we should do or other people say
0: goodness all of these episodes just meant so much to me to have and i'm just so grateful that hillary africa and bethany took the time to share their heart and their work on everything belongs and i'm also so grateful that you took the time to listen to this episode and all of the episodes that you've listened to and downloaded from the last year Again, your feedback and your reviews mean so much to me. And so if you've enjoyed any episode in the last year, I would love to invite you to leave a five-star review and to let me know in words in the comment on iTunes what it is that you love about the podcast. And I recently made a post on social media that I would love to hear who you want to have on the podcast. So go on my Instagram, find that recent post, and let me know who you want to hear from on the episodes you can actually tag them. And my team and I are making a list of the most requested people and the people that we think will really serve our audience the most. So hearing from you means the absolute world. With that, I wanted to give an update about Serve It Up. It is officially full and we are beginning on August 4th. Serve It Up is the creative business mastermind I've been talking about here on social media and on the podcast. And it is my honor to get to guide these 12 people over the next 90 days to up-level their business and their CEO mindset and their boundaries so that they can serve and serve up their magic, serve more people with more integrity, and brilliance. So I'm really excited about that. And as we head into August, which can you believe we're heading into August, I have some new free downloads that are coming your way. So pay attention on social media and here on the podcast, because there's some really fun trainings coming, some really fun free stuff headed your way. And into the fall, we will be, of course, reopening the signature program, Awaken Her Soul. So thank you so much for being here with me for an entire year. I hope you have the most brilliant week, Leo season and transition into August. I literally cannot believe it. All right, folks have the most beautiful day and I'll see you next time.